0: Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again this week. We are very excited about today's guests and... Some other great topics in the show we hope that you are having a very blessed day
0: you can catch the Builder program right here each week on your favorite catholic radio station but if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes just visit us at mncatholic.org podcast again mncatholic.org podcast or catch us on your favorite podcast app In today's episode, we're talking about the creeping totalitarianism that many see on the horizon in our country, and the newly released book, Live Not by Lies, A Manual for Christian Dissidents. We'll be joined in a moment by Rod Dreher, the author of that new book. In our mailbag segment, we're covering a question about a recent Minnesota court ruling regarding the use of student locker rooms and gender identity. And stick around for the Bricklayer segment, where we can help you restore human dignity to civil conversation. We're now joined on the line by Rod Dreher. He is the author of the number one bestseller, Live Not By Lies. It's the number one on Amazon. Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Mr. Dreyer is known for writing some outstanding books such as Crunchy Cons, The Benedict Option, which received a lot of conversation in the public and has been published around the world. He is a senior editor at the American Conservative Magazine and has written and edited for publications as diverse as the Dallas Morning News, National Review, the South Florida Sun-Sentinel, Washington Times, and the Baton Rouge Advocate. Rod's commentary uh, has also been seen in the Weekly Standard and the Wall Street Journal, and he is joining us today from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where he lives with his wife and their three children. Rod, thanks for coming on the program today. appreciate you joining us.
2: It's great to be here.
0: Tell us what inspired you to write this book, Live Not By Lies.
2: Well, it's funny that you ask because it happened right there in Minnesota. I got a call back in 2015 from a doctor in Minnesota who said, look, sir, you don't know me, but I've got your number, and I feel like I need to tell somebody this. He said, my mother is elderly, lives with me and my wife, and she was born in Czechoslovakia, and she spent six years in a communist prison for her Catholic faith back when she was younger. Now, she said, son, the things we're seeing happen in this country right now remind me of when communism came to my country. The doctor said to me, I feel like I need to tell somebody. Well, when I heard that, Jason, I said, gosh, that sounds really kind of alarmist, but okay. Uh, Then I checked with some Catholic friends of mine in the UK who had uh, defected from Hungary in the 1960s. I said, listen, this is what the old Czech woman in Minnesota said. Is it true? And they said, absolutely. We're sitting here in England watching tv in our retirement reading the papers and thinking every day it gets more and more like what we left behind that became the genesis for this book jason i I began as i would travel around the country going to conferences or uh, on speaking engagements if i would meet someone some american immigrant who had come from the soviet union or one of the eastern european countries i would just put the question to them what are you seeing every single one of them says would say to me yes It's getting to be more and more like what we left behind, and they're really upset that Americans won't take them seriously. When I started working on the book, I wanted to do two things, uh, to explain why what we're going into now feels like totalitarianism to them, and secondly, I did a bunch of interviews with Christians in the former Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, asking them, what should we do, what should we American Christians do to get ready if this really is happening?
0: So it presumes that there are a set of lies or a culture of lies that surrounds us. And what are those lies, uh, Rod, that you're seeing?
2: Well, I, I think that uh, one of the big ones, and you mentioned something like this at the top of the program, is gender ideology. That we are being forced in this country to accept a lie about human nature, about about boys and girls, males and females. We are being forced to accept the culture of death as St. John Paul called it, uh, by, uh, through abortion. And we're being forced to accept lies about who people are in terms of their race, this so-called wrongly named social justice warrior movement, which seeks to divide people along lines of identity, of gender identity, of racial identity, and sexual orientation in a way that makes uh, real human solidarity impossible.
0: You've described this as not so much a hard totalitarianism, but more of a soft totalitarianism, that uh, there might not be outright persecutions to live in accordance with these lies, but there will be ways in which people will be asked to conform. What does that look like, practically speaking?
2: Well, you know, that is such an important question, and it is one of the core questions uh, I try to address in the book. Let me start by telling a little story, and this is also in the book, but I want to make sure it gets out there. I was in Budapest in Hungary uh, working on this book, and I was riding on a tram through the city with my translator, who's a young Catholic woman, a new wife, a new mom. She told me that if she really struggles there because none of her friends her age—she must be maybe 29—none of her friends, even those who still call themselves Catholic, are safe to talk to about the struggles she has being a mom and a wife. She said, as soon as I start talking about things that are causing me anxiety, they immediately say, um, oh, just well, divorce your husband, put your son in daycare, just go back to, to work, be happy. You really need to be happy. And um, as I listened to her talk about the frustration there and her say, saying, no, I want to be married, I want to be a mom, but it's not easy all the time. I just need to have somebody to talk to about it. I looked at her, Jason, and said – it sounds like you're fighting for your right to be unhappy. She said, that's exactly it. My <laughs> right, I need to be able to be unhappy and know that everything's going to be okay. Where did you get that line? Well, I pulled out my phone, and I brought up Chapter 17 of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Most of us have read that in high school. You know, there were two great dystopian novels of the 20th century, George Orwell's 1984 and Huxley's Brave New World. And in Brave New World, the totalitarian state, it's not like in Orwell where they inflict pain and terror on you in order to get to force you to conform. In Huxley's dystopia, the the state uh, massages your pleasure manipulates your pleasure and your status to make you conform. That is the kind of thing that we're going to see here. Uh, if, if you're sitting back waiting for gulags and the secret police, then you're going to be disappointed. Uh, that's not how this totalitarianism that's coming is going to work. Rather, it's going to be the sort of thing that is – instituted through institutions like universities like schools partly the government but also corporations where if you don't align yourself completely with the social justice agenda then you're not going to be able to work this one physician i talked to said that he would not allow his children to go to medical school because he's a catholic and believes that they are not going to be able to practice medicine in the near future unless they go along with abortion and sex change operations. I mean, this is a huge, huge thing. And for the social justice warriors, this is a matter of justice. But if you can't even be a physician without bending the knee to doing things that we know as Christians are immoral, then that is a totalitarian society. It's going to be instituted through what I believe is going to be an American version of the Chinese social credit system. In China right now, the government does have gulags and secret police and all that, but they're able to control most Chinese people by something called the social credit system. Uh, China is so wired uh, with data. Most of the economy is done on uh, economic exchanges are done through smartphones and online, The Chinese government has detailed profiles, online profiles of every Chinese citizen. and they assign them each a social credit score. If you're a Chinese person and you do things that are considered socially positive, like downloading the speeches of Xi Jinping, the leader, then you get a higher rating. If you do things that are negative, like go to church or hang out with politically unreliable people, you get a lower score. The lower your score, the fewer privileges you have. You're not going to be able to get the good jobs. You're not going to be able to send your kids to college. You may not even be able to travel within the country. This is the sort of thing that I believe we're going to see here because already the major companies that we're dealing with, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and all the others, they collect all this data on us already. We're already used to it, and it's not going to be too hard for them to start weaponizing that data against us to punish dissenters by denying us access to the economy and to the normal aspects of middle-class life. And I think when that happens – you're going to see a lot of people who aren't well formed in their faith and who don't know how to suffer for their faith. You're going to see them capitulate.
0: We're speaking with Rod Dreher, author of the newly released bestseller live Not by Lies: A Manual for Christian Dissidents*. Rod, it seems that according to you, that we might be habituated to sprinkling a little incense over time, such that it really conforms us to those lies that you're talking about. It reminds me of Daniel and his companions in the Old Testament, uh, living in exile, but they wouldn't bend the knee. But they still chose to build Babylon's good without bending to its gods. Is is the Old Testament part of that manual for Christian dissidents?
2: Well, I think it has to be. I and mean, In my book, The Benedict Option, a lot of people, which came before Live Not By Lies, a lot of people thought I was saying, everybody head for the hills and build the bunkers. That's not what I was saying at all. I was trying to refer to... Uh, to the, the same stories you're talking about, the, the Hebrews in exile in Babylon, uh, if you remember, Daniel told uh, the, 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 the three Hebrew youths in the beginning of the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, they were the king's servants. They were working at the highest level of Babylonian society because they felt that that was their calling, but they knew who they were, and when the king demanded that they bow to that idol, they were willing to die before doing that. I think that is a perfect model for us Christians and this society. I'm not saying we have to head for the hills. I'm not heading for the hills. I'm living in the middle of a city and part of the public square. But I also have to know who I am and where the line is and what I'm prepared to lose to be faithful to God. I, I tell people, that that great Terence Malick movie, A Hidden Life, about the blessed Franz Jägerstater, that is a perfect example for our time. And I write about Franz in my book, Live Not By Lives. Franz was a simple Catholic farmer, lived in the uh, Austrian Alps, but because he was so disciplined in his faith and so prayerful, when the Nazis showed up in his village, he didn't go along with it. He and his family saw that evil for what it was, and they were willing to suffer the scorn of all their neighbors, And he ultimately the loss of freedom and his life to bear witness to their faith. That is the sort of faith that uh, all these people I talked to in the Eastern Bloc said that Christians in America have to have if we're going to make it through what's coming.
0: Your book is unique in that you constructed it by doing a lot of interviews in Europe of people who survived the era of communism What lessons did you learn from those folks? What was their experience of living under a culture of lies, and how did they overcome
2: that? Well, one of the first things I learned was that you have to prepare yourself that this might happen. I've dedicated the book to Father Tomislav Kolakovic. He was a Croatian uh, Jesuit, though he later left the Jesuits to become a secular priest, who was doing anti-Nazi work in Croatia during the Second World War. He got a tip that the Gestapo was coming for him, so he escaped and went to hide in Slovakia, his mother's homeland, and teach at the Catholic University there. When he got there, he told his students, he said, listen, the good news is the Germans are going to lose this war. The bad news is the Soviets are going to take over, and as soon as they take over, they're going to come after the Church. We have to be ready. The bishops told him he was being alarmist, but he didn't listen to them because he had studied... For missionary work in Russia, and he knew the communist mindset. So what Father Kolakovich did was set up prayer groups where the Catholic students would come together for prayer, for study. They would celebrate mass sometimes with priests who were aligned with them, and he spread these groups all over their country. Sure enough, when the Iron Curtain fell, the communists, the first thing they did was come after the church and the priests and the bishops, and the Catholics who were part of that underground network that Kolakovich set up they became the underground church and were the chief resistance to the communists for 40 years. It's kind of a long roundabout story, but it's a way of saying that we can't be complacent about the signs of the times. Father Kolakovich wasn't, and it made all the difference. Secondly, they told me that we have to prepare our families by not only teaching our kids right from wrong and preparing them to be weird in, the, in, in a sense and you know to stand aside from the degraded public square, but also we have to fill their imaginations with good things. One of the most impressive people I met was a Catholic uh, grandmother named Camilla Bendova. She lives in Prague. Uh, Her husband, her late husband Václav, went to prison for four years for his dissident activities. They have a really strong, large Catholic family, and they raised the kids to know who they were as Catholics and that they weren't communists, but Camilla said it was also important to fill their imaginations with good things. She said, even though I was working as a professor, I would come home at the end of the day and read for at least two hours a day to my children. I said, what would you read? She said, oh, you know, the classics, good literature, not this ideological stuff that the government was, was forcing on them. But I also read them Tolkien. I said, why Tolkien? She looked at me and said, because we knew that Mordor was real. And uh, that made a powerful impression on me about how it's not just enough to say what's bad, but you have to show your children and your community what's good. Two other quick things. One is the importance of small groups. Also in Bratislava in Slovakia, a Catholic historian took me down to a secret room. We went into a basement. There was a secret door underneath the basement. We went through a tunnel and came up in a room where for 10 years the Catholics did Samizdat, that is, forbidden publications. They printed catechisms and prayer books there, and if they had ever been found out, all of them would have gone to prison. But for 10 years, they did it there in secret, and nobody found out. The historian had been part of that cell of uh, Catholic resistors, who, uh, his job was to distribute the Samizdat, and they knew, as young men, that if they had been arrested, they would have gone to prison for years. But they did it because they loved Christ, and they wanted to be faithful to the Church. But he told me, Jan Simulchik, the historian, he said, you know, I really learned the importance of small group fellowship doing this work. He said, just being around others who were just as scared as I was, but somehow we gave each other hope. And we all kept our eyes on Christ and that helped us grow braver and braver. That's something hugely important I learned over and over as I talked to these people. Most important thing of all though, Jason, is suffering, the ability to suffer well. That, I think, is how the, how the soft totalitarianism is going to get its grip around us. Our terror in this country, in this very comfortable middle-class country, our terror of suffering. Now, as Catholics, you know that suffering can be redemptive. If we join our sufferings to Christ, then the Lord, things may not work out well for us in the end, we may even suffer martyrdom, but if we join them to Christ, the Lord will use that for redemption. A lot of Americans have forgotten that, if they ever knew it in the first place, but that is the key thing that we're going to need to resist, soft soft totalitarianism. Uh, The lesson I got over and over, whether I was talking to Protestants, Catholics, or Eastern Orthodox, was that if you Americans are not able to suffer loss of status, loss of friends, loss of job, loss of freedom, even loss of life, your faith is not going to make it.
0: Sobering, but amen to that. We're speaking with Rod Dreher, author of The Benedict Option and the newly released Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Rod, how can the institutional churches help us to suffer well and to live not by lies? What are some practical things that the churches can do?
2: Well, one thing I learned from my my research was that churches can start building small groups and encouraging the laity to take spiritual leadership roles in ways that are completely consistent with what the church teaches, but also in, in ways that help them to live out more fully their vocation as laity. For example, Father Kulukovich, when he began to empower the laity through the cells he was building, some of the very clericalist uh, people in the institutional church in Slovakia thought he was giving lay people too much power. Well, Kulukovich was actually anticipating the council. You know, where lay people were given a greater role in participating in the life of the Church. I think now with priests uh, under so much pressure from all sides, and there's a priest uh, vocation shortage and so forth, that it is time for priests to let laity who are faithful to the Church's teachings, let them lead these small groups, come together to study the Church documents, study the Church Fathers, read Scripture, and pray together, but to build these networks, these Kolokovic-like networks, I think that is one of the best things the Church can do, but also the institutional Church should quit trying to conform itself to this culture. We are in a post-Christian and increasingly anti-Christian culture. I see so many, um, so many priests and people, not just in the Catholic Church, but also in my Orthodox Church and in Protestant churches, who are desperate to make sure that the Church stays quote-unquote relevant to the society around it. That is a sure way to irrelevance. We need to be a church, all of us, whatever our confession, we need to be a church that knows what it believes. We have taught ourselves and our children what it really means to be Catholics or Orthodox or Christians, just general Christians, and we're not ashamed of it. One of the real evil things that the totalitarians did was they maintained power by depending on the forgetfulness of the culture around them. If you don't know who you are and what it means to be a Catholic or a Pole, somebody like that, you know the totalitarians will win. Pope John Paul II, when he was a young man, I tell this story in the book, when he was a young man in Poland, he was a theater student, as many of your listeners will know. And when the Nazis took over, they had two goals, to destroy the Polish nation and destroy the Polish church so they could enslave the people. What John Paul, Karol Wojtyla, and his colleagues did— was write plays that were patriotic and also very Catholic and performed them in secret for audiences, all of whom would have been killed had the Gestapo found them out. But they wanted to keep that cultural memory alive. And that is such an important thing. This man in Budapest, I to, he's quoted in the book, a Catholic man named Tomash Shai. He said that, Rod, I grew up under, I was a kid under Nazism. I grew up under communism. But I have to tell you, that neither the Nazis nor the Communists were able to destroy so much cultural memory here in Hungary as the last 30 years of capitalism have. That's really sobering from a man who hates the Communists, but he said that all our people want now, all the young people want, is to follow their own desires and to be just like the godless consumerists of the West. This is going to be the death of Christianity if we give in to that and allow our cultural memory to be taken from us, whether it's taken from us by a government in schools or whether it's taken from us by the indifference we have. And we allow pop culture to come in there and take that space in our minds.
0: Rod, one of the gross mischaracterizations of your work is that it advocates Christian isolationism when, in fact, a good reading of your work shows instead intentional discipleship so that the church may be bred for the world you've hit in this conversation over and over on this question of identity, knowing who we are, both as a church and as individuals. And I think that's interesting because we live in an age in which the lies that are out there are rooted in identity politics. How does uh, the church embracing its identity and Christians embracing their identity help us in this time of lies to be bred for the world and confront the ideologies of identity politics uh, that surround us?
2: Well, I, I think that In a time of mass cowardice and confusion, the man and the woman, who know what they believe and are willing to suffer for their beliefs, offer real testimony to people who are searching. I tell in my book a story that the late Václav Havel, who was not a Christian but he was a leader of the dissidents in Czechoslovakia, he tells this parable of the greengrocer and under communism. Havel's greengrocer is a man who puts a sign up in the window of his shop saying, workers of the world unite, you know, the Marxist slogan, not because he believes it, but because he wants to go along to get along. He doesn't want trouble. So he conforms. Well, one day he decides, I'm not going to conform. I don't care what happens. I'm not going to put that sign in the window. Well, he may lose his business. His kids may lose college. He may lose the ability to travel. His life completely changes. But Havel said, what that man has done by his willingness to stand for the truth and suffer for the truth is he sends a powerful signal to the rest of society that we don't have to live in the lie, that you can be a free man or a free woman if you're willing to suffer for what you know to be true. And that's going to give courage to a lot of people. It may not give courage to everybody, but it gave enough courage in these countries to build a resistance. Not a, this is something really interesting, Jason. Not a single one of these people who resisted ever thought they would live to see the end of communism. They were all caught by surprise. They resisted because they knew it was the right thing to do. They didn't want to live in the lies of communism. Whether they were Christian or not Christian, they wanted to live in the truth. And that sort of respect for the truth, and again, the willingness to suffer for it, that does offer a powerful sign to the rest of the world that we Christians We're willing to stand up for what we believe in and for who we follow, no matter what it costs.
0: We've been blessed to be joined on the line today by Rod Dreher, one of our nation's most important public intellectuals, author of the newly released Live Not by Lies, a Manual for Christian Dissidents. Rod, thanks so much for coming on the show and uh, sharing this experience of writing this important book.
2: It was great to be here. It's important that we all get to know each other now, know who we are and who each other is, because we're going to need each other in the days to come.
0: Amen. And thanks again for joining the Bridge Builder program. Rod Dreher. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. And now it's time to jump into the mailbag to hear what questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in this week's mailbag segment?
1: Yeah, one of our listeners says, I heard in the news that a Minnesota court decided that schools must now allow students to use locker rooms based on their gender identity. Our listener wants to know, do parents and students have any recourse under the law if they believe that boys should use boys locker rooms and girls should use girls locker rooms? Jason, maybe you can help bring our listeners up to speed on this and what impacts this decision may have.
0: Sure. The Minnesota Court of Appeals ruled that it was wrong for a school district to require a student who identified as the opposite sex to use a private restroom and and changing room that was designated for this student. that wasn't sufficient, that the student had a right to actually use the locker room based on his or her professed gender identity, regardless of biological sex. A very disappointing, ill-reasoned decision from the Minnesota Court of Appeals. Our human rights laws and our anti-discrimination laws don't require us as a state to make that policy choice it's hopeful that the school district in question will appeal that decision to the minnesota supreme court or that the minnesota legislature will clarify that anti-discrimination rules do not require mixing sexes in locker rooms both a privacy concern and of course a safety concern as well that ruling does not apply to private schools or catholic schools which have an exemption from decisions like this for now although we need to be vigilant about that And it's important to realize that these decisions, they should be appealed, but it speaks to some of the lies that Rod Dreher talks about in the interview that we just had. The whole gender identity ideology dilemma, in many cases, this phenomenon of rapid onset gender dysphoria in young people has to be confronted. It's part of the confusion of our culture. We need a clear identity of who we are as created male and female. In the image and likeness of God, the importance of understanding, embracing the gift of our biological sex, aligning our psychological state in conformity with the reality of our biological sex, and that being not just an imposition on our ideas or identity, but the path to happiness, the way in which God has made us. Thankfully, again, that those rulings will not apply at this point to Catholic schools, and Catholic schools in this state have clear guidelines for sexual identity in Catholic education that the bishops of Minnesota have created, and it's up to the diocese to implement those in an appropriate manner in its schools and its educational institutions. Boys are boys and are treated as such in Catholic educational programming, and girls are girls and vice versa. So there is clarity about that in the Catholic Church and yet another argument for putting your child in Catholic schools where the truth of the human person is acknowledged and is affirmed.
1: Wonderful. Thanks for helping us better understand that case and where it may still be going. What do we have in this week's Bricklayer segment? How can people start to bridge that gap between faith and public life?
0: Well, with a few weeks to go until Election Day, we want to encourage each of you not only to make a pledge to help restore dignity and civility to political discussions, but encourage others to as well. You can do this by taking the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops' Civilize It pledge. If you saw the presidential debate or have been on Facebook at all, you know that the conversations can become uncivil, and unfortunately it's a symptom of deeper cultural and political problems in our society. But we have to be bred for the world and be the difference. We have to model as a church, and as individuals a different way. You can sign this online pledge, but you can also make use of it on social media and show others that you are pledging to honor human dignity through civil conversation. What does that look like? Presuming goodwill of our neighbors, understanding that if they make different choices, it's not necessarily in bad faith, but because they made a different judgment about the complex realities facing our society today, genuinely listening to the others and their points of view and engaging in rational as opposed to strictly emotional conversation and debates. Want to take the step further? Record a video of yourself reading the pledge out loud and then sharing it on social media. Use the hashtag civilize it so that your voice will be added to those who believe that there is dignity beyond the debate. Go to www.civilizeit.org to sign the pledge, or you can find that pledge link through our website, mncatholic.org election. Again, mncatholic.org election. That's all the time we have for today, but you can be part of our mailbag segment. Just send any of your comments or questions to show at mncatholic.org You can follow past episodes of The Bridge Builder online at mncatholic.org slash podcast. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross, the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening. Have a blessed day.